Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. It's 1978, and 22-year-old Elena Alvarez has just graduated from college with a degree in physics. Then she discovers she's pregnant. Luckily, her grandmother invites her to come to Leadville, Colorado, where a shocked and grieving widower needs help caring for his two children. Elena has no idea how to care for children, but isn't sure she can end her pregnancy after a lifetime of guilt for having caused the death of three people in an accidental fire. Through the course of this lovely novel, Elena learns to forgive herself and to accept the love and compassion of friends and family. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Literature. I'm G.P. Gottlieb, the host of this channel. Today, I'll be talking with Margot Katz about her book, Among the Lesser Gods, a big-hearted, juicy novel about, well, it's about so much stuff, I really need to have a conversation with Margot about it. Hi, Margot. And welcome to the podcast. Hello, Galit. Glad to be here. So tell me a little bit more about yourself. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? Did you Do you have a mentor? And how did you come to write Among the Lesser Gods? All right. Well, I was born in Los Angeles, like Elena was, grew up in a setting very similar to that of her childhood, the L.A. foothills, the Chaparral Canyons and foothills there. One of my earliest memories is of evacuating from a wildfire. I was three years old, standing outside our house, looking at smoke coming from behind the hills with our car loaded up with boxes and whatever precious things there were to my parents. And uh, that just obviously always stayed with me. I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but... If I'm totally honest, I was afraid of it. It you you have all those voices that say, "Oh, that's not practical. That's not you know what you actually do for a job," and so and I'm not one of those. I got kind of scared off by the the idea of needing to be some poetry slam arty dark kind of person that I didn't feel like I was. Uh, so I treated it as a hobby. I met my husband at school in Utah. I at one point took a, started to take a creative writing class and we were walking through the hallways, of the basement of the arts building and the teachers going on about the way words are on the tongue, on the tongue. And I just thought, Oh, okay, never mind. I'm, I'm not one of these people and went on and got kind of vaguely pre-law for a while. Um, vaguely pre counseling. And my husband graduated. We left and I left without my degree. And we moved to Denver, got to work in a law office uh, where I was reading a lot of suspense and thrillers at the time. I was at this point in my 20s. And so I wrote one of those. And I thought it was as, you know, good enough and gave it a try, floated it out to agents. And this was back in the day of paper and stamps and sending things out one at a time. And I got nice responses that said, 
I like your writing. Please get back to me with your next thing. And then by the time the they'd been out to a few and months had passed, I thought, I can see it now. It's just, it's not me. I'm just copying what other people do. And, and I set it aside, raised my kids, and uh, we moved to Indianapolis. And that's where I kind of fell into editing. We live near uh, the headquarters of a big technical publisher, lots of imprints of computer manuals and that sort of thing. And I started editing with those, kind of drifted into freelance writing after that, articles, blog posts, went on. We moved back to Denver. And by then I'd realized what really compelled me was stories about ordinary people just working out their stuff. So the ingredients for Among the Lesser Gods had been simmering for years. And at that point, finally, now, my kids all grown, I sat down and wrote it. Um, At the end, that's also when we moved to Saudi Arabia uh, with my husband's work. And we lived there for a couple of years. I started an expat blog there, had a story in an anthology, have, I guess it's Yes, it exists. Um, a story in an anthology of expat stories called Once Upon an Expat. So that's out there. And then Among the Lesser Gods was sold to Arcade Publishing after we got back. And now we're living in Houston. Good story. A lot of traveling. So getting towards the book here. I love how your title character, Elena, brings in little facts about her degree uh in physics. And one of the things was how tiny actions set off reactions, which she sees as the story of her life. I'm wondering if that somehow connects to how you chose the title of Among the Lesser Gods instead of something about physics. Who are you referring to as the Lesser Gods? I love that question. Yeah, I, there's a sort of a backstepping into things that that led to all that. Initially, in my mind, she was in biology. And then as I wrote the book more and got deeper into it, and I realized so many of her issues have to do with these principles of physics, I thought, oh, no, 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 she's a physicist. Um, and, And the mythology aspect of it had always been kind of tied in, this idea of fate and black and white and everything's good or bad and the universe is conspiring against you going back to mythology. And so when I was looking for a title, because I had just not been able to come up with a functional title and early on, the, the one of the first things the publisher said was the title that was submitted to them, which at the time was The Gathering Jar, I said, love the book, title's got to change. And so I went back to mythology and was just kind of Googling around looking for stories, gods, whatever to, to connect to. And in one of my searches, I see, you know, stories of the lesser gods of North Norse mythology or something like that. And thought just lesser gods. I like that. And that's, that's who the people are. If, if the gods, fate, the universe, the natural world is what just throws stuff at you and it's neutral. It's neither good or bad. What it becomes after that is what people do with it. And and that the world is populated entirely by lesser gods, just 
monkeying around with the stuff that we have to deal with and figuring out how to live fully and live anyway. So I loved your first line. I, I always uh, focus on that first line of every book. I wasn't thinking about rescue when my grandmother's letter came. Nothing in my life had given me reason to expect divine giveaways, and I certainly didn't deserve any. Let's talk about that. Thank you. That was a wrestle. (laughs) A writer knows the first line is important, and where do you start, and how do you put it? And, yeah, there is an effort to try and capture. Was it always your first line? No, that was not always my first line. In fact, that was not where the book began. I The book was the product of two different stories, and I wasn't sure which one to write. I had an image in my head from that was just kind of vague of someone going high into the mountains to lay flowers at the grave of a lost relative, and that's where the where the book started with this with this woman driving up into the mountains into air so high and thin and clear that that she could hardly breathe it. And uh, then she recalls a family picture. There's a beautiful girl with some invisible disability who was mysteriously lost and that somehow the narrator's life was changed because of it. And I carried that around in my head for years. I didn't know who any of them were or what happened, but there was just that picture in my head. And, and I, and I wrote a prologue based or a scene, you know, based on that. Then separately, I read an account of, of a wildfire in Colorado that just a newspaper article, 12 paragraphs, something like that. How many acres burned, how much contained that sort of thing. And, and structures, it was, it was, enough to have done serious damage and affected people's lives. And the last paragraph of it said, and this is the part I remember, the fire is believed to have been started by children playing. And I thought, what happens to those children? Who are they when they grow up? We talk about the victims of the fire, but the children are also victims of the fire, aren't they? They're just kids. And so anyway, I wondered which story do I write as I'm figuring out now I'm really going to sit down and write stories about people. And I, the one about the children as adults, as this child who set a fire. So I have a girl who started a fire. I have a girl who was lost. Which one am I going to play with? And I started kind of chasing both of them. And at some point realized they, they informed each other that they were the same story, that they were wrapped around each other. And that shifted everything. And I moved forward from there now So the story that started, actually, was the one about the girl that was lost. The story that finished was the story about the girl who started the fire. And so the place where the book started, I realized, was not pointing us in the right direction. And the whole beginning had to be revised. And then it became Elena as an adult returning to visit the empty place. And then that went away and one thing after another and finally wound up with her getting the invitation to go because I realized the thing that she was dealing with was the effect of the fire. I didn't need to tell the story of the fire. I didn't need to have her thinking back on how things happened. It was where she was as an adult. 
let's just drop in right there. Mm-hmm. So then she agrees to to take this babysitting job, even though it's unpaid. And she takes, she drives from California to Colorado, taking, following the route that she always took with her father. Can you talk about how those journeys with her father connect to this journey? Oh my, I guess every, I mean, every story, every novel at some level is a journey story. You've got to move from one place to another. You, you in mythology and scriptures and everything, there are all these journey stories. And it seemed like a fitting place for her to begin with a little physical journey to get her going on the rest of her trip, but that she needed to separate first step on a physical level. She needed to separate from the place where she'd lived and the place where she'd created her, her narrative of her life and make a break and be in a fresh place. I liked how she ordered the same food that she always ordered on the trips with her father through the years, the same pancakes in the same restaurant. It was very, just a lovely little connection there. I love those. I, I, I love the Southwest. I love the, the, Oh gosh, do I have to say wide open spaces? But yeah, just these <laughs> these big empty spaces and the kind of hodgepodge ramshackle sort of way that that places grow up in in that environment where uh, you know I that person just kind of starts a business, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, and they drift on. And there's so many abandoned places, and there's so many repurposed places. And then nothing. And then, yeah, you, you mark your landmarks a lot when you when you move through it. And I didn't make that kind that specific trip myself a bunch of times, probably only a handful. Uh, but it it's it's like it doesn't matter those those places. You can populate them with almost anything out of your imagination. And yeah, you'd, you'd probably find it there. Hmm. So the grandmother is just the wise character who she notices the bruise on Elena's face, connects the dots, asks if, uh, if the guy is out of the picture, understands somehow that Elena really needs this non-paid babysitting job. Why is she so wise? What, is she just the typical wise old woman? How did you envision her? I... There, there is kind of this sage character of the American West, the person who's just kind of soaked in place and, and understands the cycles of life and humanity and nature and that they're all tangled up together and you sit down in it and you have it in all its catastrophe and danger and wonder you have to be in it and and I think she's probably seen all along certainly knowing her own son and being anxious about who he has turned into and watching him raise her granddaughter and biting her lip and just waiting for the time 
Gwendolyn would be able to come into her own and taking advantage of that opportunity to say, okay, let's just have you be here for a while and get away from everything else. You'll find your way. Everybody does eventually. Can you talk a little bit about Elena's dad, Tua's son, and how he how he behaves, how he be- did behave, what was going on with him? Yeah, he has his own, well, as everyone does, he has his own baggage, his own issues from, and, and to, to set the timeline, he grew up in, spent his childhood at least, in the ghost town where Tua lives, spends her summers at least now. and But that was a town when he was a child and that's where he lived. But, but now that's gone. And the life that he had there and the way he processed it turned him inward on himself. He's wrestling with his own demons of blame and cause and effect and, and has found his way through life by just shrinking it, getting smaller and controlling a tiny little space that he's in. And if he can control that, then that's it. Don't get outside of there. We exist in this small space of control and, and, but then his daughter has a disaster by setting this fire that has killed people and done great damage. It makes it impossible for her to live anywhere without people figuring it out because he refuses to go very far. He's a teacher. He, he works for a school district. So in any effort to move and get her into a new school where no one will know that she's the girl who started the fire, he can only move a little ways and move to a slightly different school where people have also heard of the fire. And, but, but he won't move outside of his safety place of things that he knows and what he does. And he's going to stay in one spot and he's going to teach and he's going to go home at night and, and keep everything under control. And that's, that's his way of, of dealing with a life where trouble happens. And the mother, that must have been difficult to write about. That's unusual to write about a mother who picks up and leaves, abandons her only child. Yeah, that seemed like a, <laughs> they say, take your characters and, and look at what you can do to make things worse. Yeah, somehow it felt like a bigger thing to have her have her mother reject her rather than a father that for whatever that's worth that that connection of of mother seemed a little more wrenching a bigger rejection to have a mother who just couldn't handle what her daughter had done and and drifted on whether the fire actually was the issue that made the mother leave or whether the mother just had enough problems of her own that she was going to be a drifter, no matter what, it doesn't really matter from the child's perspective. Um, So there's this family quilt that Elena returns to and talks about several times. Um, There's a lot of meaning sewn into that quilt. What can you tell us? Uh, I don't think I ever intended for the, the the quilt may have been a bit of an accident. Uh, It started out just her 
taking comfort just with a blanket because it's chilly in the high altitude early in the morning and in the evening. And she's just snuggled up with this blanket. That's one that's been around because it's a cabin with a lot of old stuff and it's her grandmother's house. And, uh, and then it just kind of kept reappearing. It, it wasn't until late in the novel when it occurred to me to tie, um, to tie it all the mm-hmm. way through. Okay. Um, so another interesting character in the book is the cabin up in Hat Creek. The beauty, the rawness, the isolation, the um, 19th century feel, the outhouse. What can you tell us about that character? I, I have always had a thing. I, I'm not alone in this. I think it's pretty common. A thing with abandoned places or, or places that are tied to what's old, whether it's old castles or ruins or fallen down log cabins or whatever else, that there's something about um, the, the way that the touch of people is left behind. The people are gone, but the things they touched, the places where they lived their lives are still there. And when you put your hand on the, the chinking between logs and think, who put this here? who touched it. And, and so, yeah, I, I, I love that. And, and the story of the abandoned, the, the lost girl was naturally going to be set in a, in a ghost town. And with my own location in Colorado, I see plenty of it in the mountains. It's, it's easy to picture a town and, and create a setting for it. But, uh, but then when the story became Elena's, I realized, oh, a ghost town is a, a town that's stuck, that's left behind, is a good place for her to be working with her own life being stuck, a life that she's frozen in time and that she won't move forward with. But yeah, I love I love those spaces. I, I love that that cabin in my head. I can see it so clearly. It, it doesn't have a particular one that I based it on that exists in reality. It's just in my head, tucked into this little spot in the trees. And yeah, I can see it and, and how quiet it would be there. I have great grandparents who homesteaded on the plains in Colorado. And there's there was at one time still on a list of Colorado ghost towns, depending on how old it is, you can still find the town listed. It was Buckingham, Colorado. There's really nothing left of what was the town of Buckingham and people who live there now have a different address, a different town. And some of the buildings that were there burned down in a fire or were so badly damaged, they had to be bulldozed some sometime after the first time that I visited. So I did get to see a few of them. But uh, there's there's still one building standing out there, kind of kind of on a bluff. And man, those those empty dryland prairie plains are there could not be a more solitary place. And just standing in this cabin that's still standing and looking out of the window, you can see the view that whoever was in that cabin would have been looking at of just empty plain stretching away, and think. This is before radio. This is before TV. There's nothing to listen to all day. There's just you 
and that emptiness. And yes, the cabin in the mountains would have had a little more to look at and a little more to go on, but that sense of quiet and distance and isolation was powerful to me. Yeah, and we can hope that they'll never ruin it with a casino because it's too isolated, right? (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) Although there was the temptation uh, of ghost town dude ranch rides to commercialize it a little Mm -hmm. bit. And there are plenty of towns in Colorado where because they're more accessible and, and abandoned, they have become destinations to go to and yeah, efforts are being made to preserve them. I think also, well, Bodie, California is a good example of, of one where the people just walked away and somebody bless them, bought it, preserved it, and you can walk through it and see it as it Mm. was. So there's a um, a connection for Tua and for Elena between the house in Leadville and the cabin up in Hat Creek. Were you thinking about that while you were writing it? Um, ask that question again. I'm not quite clear what you mean about the connection, but oh, just the relationship between the two houses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're in contrast with each other. Um, the house in Leadville is the show-off house that. Elena's grandfather had built because doggone it, he was successful and he, he wanted to have a home that showed it off. And so it's Victorian and the, all the modern conveniences, it was built earlier, but, but still it's all, you know, carpet and whole house heat and, and electric appliances in the kitchen and everything's all comfy and cushy. And then the, the cabin is more rustic and raw. I think probably left if the two, if he had, if he were still alive, if Elena's grandparents were still a couple in my head, they wouldn't be spending so much time up at the cabin as, as Tua does as a widow that, that the two of them eh, they might go up and, and have a fun cabin week and relax in the quiet for a week or two. But, but, but she's a person who loves it and loves, loves being by herself and loves being with her memories and just soaked in the place where her family was young and where everyone was together and just the beauty of the place and being reliant on herself. She loves it and spends the whole summer up there by herself. I remember Elena asks her at some point, why are you keeping this ancient cabin? It's you're getting too old. It's too hard. And the, the grandmother to uh, says something like, I'm not going there to stay away from, I'm sorry, I'm not going to quote you exactly, but something like I'm not going away to get away from people. I'm, I'm going because I want to be, uh, because the house holds memories for me and it keeps the people safe and my memories safe for anyone who wants to come back. It was very beautiful. She really is connected to that. Thank you. Cabin. Yeah. I, I, I feel that way about houses. We've, I, the house I grew up with, my, my parents bought two years before I was born. My mother still lives there and that house is always there. I can't imagine not having that house as part of me. And I feel like houses are, they do, they soak you up. Even a place where you spend a lot of time on vacation. I remember leaving a condo where we'd been with our family for a week and feeling like, I just want to bring this with me. It held us. And, and, and there's a piece of us that's being left behind when we leave this house. 
And, Mm -hmm. and each time that we've moved, we, the, we started in Denver, our kids were young in Denver, we moved to Indianapolis, they had their central growing up years in Indianapolis. And then we came back to Denver, where they went to high school and, and left home and, and then came back to as adults. And then we left that house. And, and in each case, it's wrenching it, you, there is a part of you that you can't take with you when you leave behind the house where you lived it. You, you leave traces of yourself in the house you live in. When we, when we moved to Saudi Arabia, we did come back to our same house in Denver. We'd had renters in it while we were gone. And, and when we re-entered the empty house, it, it felt like an embrace. And I, you know, we'd been away two and a half years and, and I walked in and I, I, I could feel my, my brain, like expect my dog to come to the door. And my hand was reaching for the light switches automatically. I, the, it just, my muscle memory knew where everything was, the house and the person become a little bit fused. And, and I think maybe Tua is a little bit living my dream of being able to keep those places just set aside and to be able to go to them whenever you want. Well, you definitely shared your love of place in this, in this story. So we've got a very, a wonderful, perfect character, Leo, who is smart and sweet and adorable. And he's a student at the school of mines and he's a cowboy. Um, and everybody who reads this is going to fall in love with him. So, and he accepts the fact that she's pregnant. What can you say about him? Yeah, he, I, I have him in my head as just sort of this, uh, a little bit sharing kind of to his soul, as far as like the present of what's going on is the present. That's, that's the reality. That's just what is. Elena has been, trying to hide from reality or control reality, he lives fully in it. That, okay, you're pregnant, fine. People get pregnant. You're doing a strange, irresponsible, going nowhere summer. All right, fine. <laughs> that's, that's, it is, it is the present. We have fun hanging out together. So let's just do that. And what their future, but I get people asking, is there going to be a sequel? I think, yeah, it's like, have, have it be what you want it to be. Enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tua's daughter, the aunt who disappeared, what can you say about that? That, as I said, that was that, that picture in my head and she, she was, she was just a picture. Who, who was she? And, and mining out who she was and what that relationship was and what happened to her was part of the process of writing the book. I, at some point had seen a, some piece on a TV magazine news feature thing or something about a, and now I forget what the name of it was, but some genetic, uh, something on the, on the, the X chromosome 
uh, an ability that, that left children, girl children, who were physically, visually, 100% normal, just growing up looking like every other child, but with profound mental impairment and cognitive disabilities, and and usually functioning by the time they were adults at a at a very childlike level, and and that idea of this beautiful girl with an invisible thing. All you have is a picture and, and what defined her in life is not visible in the picture. Uh, and so that's kind of where I went with her and, and that idea of her being the, the only one in a crew of flawed characters who's, not flawed in any way that she's perfect as to us as at one point that she is utterly perfect mm-hmm. and that loss and then how you capture it and how you um, incorporate that into your life, I think is a lot of, of Tua's journey and, and her need to carry that drop of perfection with her. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in a couple more characters uh, that we haven't talked about. So Paul, the father of the two children, Elena's babysitting for, and his recently deceased wife, Carrie, who is a hoarder. Can you talk a bit about those two? Yeah. I, I love Paul. I loved writing Paul. He seemed to just kind of step right out and start talking. And he he revealed himself to me in a way other characters didn't and that that sweet sad marriage that he and his wife had had where he marries he falls in love with this beautiful fun girl and over the course of the marriage begins to discover that the fun comes from a place that's not balanced and isn't safe but the love is still there and he'll do whatever he has to do to keep the marriage together. And then after her loss, has to reconcile with the reality that as as tough as it is in in front of his face, he can't help but see that some things are better in the midst of terrible, terrible grief and loss. But that there's risk that the kids were being exposed to, that there was hardship in his own daily life. and 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 the grief and the change and the relief and sorrow are just all bound up together in a knot that's impossible to take apart. And then one more thing about about Elena, she's so self-sabotaging. How did you come up with all those? Oh gosh, haven't we all known these people where where you just think mm-hmm. again? Really? Can't you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> find your way out of this just like stop what you're doing you're, you're causing your own trouble and yeah it, 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 I, I think probably in early iterations she was less less self-sabotaging but you gotta you gotta lean all the way in with somebody like that and she's got to be in dire straits for her to be interesting as a character and for the reader to want to root for her and to and for the light to come on for her finally feels like that much more of a relief to say that, 
I'm, I can see I've mostly been causing my own problems and doesn't mean I won't have problems, but I'm going to try to quit making my own. Right. So of all the themes you deal with in Among the Lesser Gods, family, hope, love, forgiveness, was there any one theme that moved you the most or were, were they all dancing around in your mind? A little bit of both. I think they were all mixing around in my mind, but definitely a big part having to do with that stuff is more complicated than it seems. It, it does as technology and human progress moves us forward. And we have so many shorter ways of putting things. We look for reductive answers and we seem to grab on to simple cause and effect. Oh, well, she did this and this happened, but that changes everything that no, it is never like that. There's never one thing that leads to other things. And so I wanted to explore the complexity of how tangled stuff is that, that there isn't one thing that causes one thing that causes one thing that cause and effect isn't a chain. It's a, huge spider web that is getting Mm. torn apart all the time and rewoven all the time. And that, and that I think that was, that was kind of at the core the journey that I wanted Elena to take was this idea locked in her head of very simplistic cause and effect. I started a fire. People were killed. I'm bad. That's it. And And this leads to this leads to this. And we've come to the end of the chain and, and let her start to live in a world where she can see that that isn't the case. And that the one thing you do doesn't have to be the cause of whatever you're tying to it, that what you're tying to it, that's you, not the thing. And, and that, that exploring how com- how complex things are and how impossible it is to ever reduce something to one soundbite, one answer, is a way to think harder about, I think, the way all of us engage with the world, trying to push back, I guess. Yeah, maybe that's it, that I was just trying to push back against that reductive way of looking at things and and give a place to explore how incredibly complicated, complicated everything in the everyday world and ordinary life really is. Thank you. So I'd like to ask you a traditional new books question now. What are you working on? Well, my next book is set in Saudi Arabia, drawing on my, our life there and, and my experience the best handle I've been able to put on it is that it's a culture clash, Romeo and Juliet story, sort of. Um, it is a place where I felt like an utter outsider, that there is an inscrutable culture. That it, the, on, on the day you arrive, you feel like you might as well have been dropped in the middle of, of Mars, um, populated Mars, but, but a completely alien culture and client, uh, culture and, and, and culture, excuse me, culture and city. And, and, and much of the time that I was there, I felt like really all I was doing was 
peering through a knothole, trying to see what's going on on the other side, that I could never really get inside the culture, could never really understand fully. And, and being okay with not understanding and seeing the dangers of people who did live there for a little while and began to try and explain it and, and say, as if they understood and feeling like, no, 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 we don't, we don't ever understand fully. Um, so I wanted to kind of explore what happens when you, when you're looking across some of these divides, I, at, at some point while I was there, I started to think, oh, this culture is a dysfunctional family. And here's the father role. And here's the mother role. And here's the child role that I see played out in this culture around me. What if I take a family, a organic, you know, American family, and give them those same roles and those same dysfunctions, and then plop them down in the middle of it and see how it plays out. And then I started to realize that all cultures are dysfunctional families because there's no end to the ways in which families can be dysfunctional. And so the story has grown into this kind of stew of different cultural markers that I'm throwing into other cultures and, and stirring them around each other and seeing how much we have in common and how little we understand each other and how do we inhabit the same space? Mm, I'll look forward to seeing that one. Does it have a title? City of Walls is what I'm working with. City of Walls. I'll look forward to it. Thanks so much for sharing your time with me, Marco. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank And thank you for listening to this podcast from the New Books Network. Once again, I'm GP Gottlieb, host of New Books and Literature, and today I've been talking with Margot Katz about her novel, Among the Lesser Gods, published by Arcade last in uh, May of 2017.